The Lord calls us to worship this morning from the book of Psalms, chapter 138. I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods I will sing praises to you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all, your name. In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. Amen. Father, we thank You for gathering us together today as Your people, the church, that we might sing the excellencies of Your greatness, that we might lift up the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, that we might bless Your name and say that You are our God and there is no other. Lord, we pray that You would pour out Your Spirit upon us today as Your people, that we would have a sense of Your presence, that we would have a knowledge of the truth of the Gospel, and that we would glory in our hearts that the God of the universe has condescended to show Himself to us. Lord, we pray that we would glory in Christ and in Christ alone today. May You fill this house with the praises of Your people. May You be glorified in everything that is said and done, and may the Lord Jesus Christ receive all praise and honor and glory alone. And Lord, would You join our hearts together now as we pray the prayer that You taught Your disciples to pray saying out loud, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. This morning for our confession of faith, we're going to be reciting together out loud the Apostles' Creed. I'm going to begin by asking you, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, 
born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From this he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Hear these words of assurance from the book of Isaiah chapter 59. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. Amen. Let's continue to worship, opening your hymnal to number 457, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. forward at this time for the children's sermon. Well, good morning, boys and girls. Good morning. What a full group we have. Come on, Taylor. There's room for you, buddy. What a wonderful group. It's been a few weeks. I might be a little bit out of practice. It's been a few weeks since we've been together. I've got a couple questions for you this morning, okay? 
I want to begin by asking you, um, who knows what a covenant is in the Bible? Can somebody say uh, just what a covenant is? A promise that God makes with His people. A promise that God makes with His people. And do the people also make a promise to God in a covenant? Yes. Yes. And so what can you can you think of? This might be a little bit harder. But what is the covenant of God based upon? What is the strength of God's covenant based upon? When He makes a promise, how do you know He'll keep it? Because He says it in the Bible. Because He says it in the Bible. He says it in His Word. But it's also based on His character. Who He is. And the, the standing of His character is something that is unquestioned and unchanging. So when God makes a promise to you, do you remember one of the first promises He made in the Bible? He's, Kate. He promised to Adam and Eve that, um, uh, what was it? <clears throat> he promised to Adam and Eve that everything on the planet would be theirs. That everything on the planet would be theirs. Yep. That's something he promised them. Thomas? He promised to Noah that he would never flood the earth again. Promised he'd never flood the earth again to Noah, Titus? He promised he would send a savior. He promised he would send a savior. Jacob, did you have one more? So, another... Caleb. Yeah, promised when... I think it was Cain killed Abel. Um, he promised that... That if anyone would try to kill Cain, he would not let them kill him. Yep, he told he told Cain, no one is going to be able to kill you because I am I'm taking care of you. Yes. He promised them that they could eat any of the food in the garden except for one. Yep, that's right. God's made a lot of promises in His Word, and can anybody tell me? Raise your hand real quick. Can anybody tell me one of the promises that God's broken? None. None. Not one has He broken. And one of the greatest promises that God has made to His people, and He made this in the Old Testament, He told them, I will be your God and you will be my people. It means that He is the one that we pray to. He's the one He promises. God promises you that when you pray, He's the one who hears you. And He also promises that He will answer. And it may not always be the answer that you want or that you would like. And you may not get what you want, but He promises that He will always give you exactly what you need. That you will never be without, because He will take care of you. So I want to pray for you now that you believe and trust in God's promises in His covenant, okay? Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the richness of the blessings that we enjoy just standing here this morning, being in this house. With these covenant children in front of us, Lord, it is a a reminder to us of your faithfulness. That you said you are the one who gives life and breath. That you are the one who provides for us. And Lord, I pray for our covenant children this morning. Who we believe are another blessing from your hand. Another way that you show us you're faithful. Lord, help us and help our covenant children to remember that you do keep your promises. And that you hear us when we pray. Lord, I pray that you would bless them as they might be fearful or have questions, as they might have things on their minds that they believe they need answers to. Lord, I pray at a young age they would learn to turn to you in prayer first. And Lord, I pray that you would show yourself mighty and strong as you have for generations. 
that you are the God who answers prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. This morning for our responsive reading, we're going to be reading together Psalm uh, 113. It's on page 826 in the Green Hymnal. I'll begin uh, with the light portion, and please respond out loud together with the bold. Psalm 113 on page 826. Praise the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 30, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past, as we continue to worship.
be seated. This morning for our pastoral prayer time, I wanted to um, to do two things. We're going to pray for our missionaries, Roger and Laura Dye, but I also wanted to praise the Lord in this time of prayer to offer up thanksgiving for answer to prayer. I know that many of us have requests and petitions on our mind, and we brought them with us today. We carry them with us often. They're on our minds when we wake up in the morning, when we go to bed at night. But even this week, in the midst of our own church family, the Lord has continued day after day to show Himself strong and faithful to His people. And we have great reason to give all thanks and praise to Him for His hand upon us, upon our families, upon our friends, and upon our church family. We have great reason to give thanks to the Lord. So let's go before His throne of grace now together. Father, we thank You that we may call upon You as the God who hears prayers. And we praise You, Lord of Heaven, that You are the God who answers prayers. And we come before You as Your people, grateful and humbled, that You continually condescend to us, sinful people, showing us who You are, showing us the mighty hand of salvation that You have brought in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that by Your witness in the world, You continue to do things on behalf of Your people that show You are not a distant God. You are not one who is far off or who has forgotten His people. You are the faithful shepherd who leads Your people like a flock. You tend us by your mighty care. And you have shown us even this past week the many ways that your hand of providence has sustained us. Lord, we thank you and praise you that in our homes individually we may give thanks to you for answered prayer. But we do so today as a grateful church family that you are the one who answers and you hear. Lord, I do pray for those who continue to raise up the same petition day after day and week after week, who trust that You will be the one who hears and answers in Your providential time and in Your sovereign care. Lord, I pray for those in our midst who are wearied by the cares of this life and who do carry great grief with them in sorrow, in trials and in afflictions. And though they rejoice with those who rejoice, they are sorrowful, Lord. And I pray that as a church family, we would count it a blessing and a privilege to be able to bear up the burdens of our brothers and sisters as we pray each day in our homes. We pause and do that now, Lord, as a church family. We raise up to you those who are suffering and struggling under a weight of affliction and a weight of sorrow and grief. And we cry out to you that you would answer, that you would pour out mercy on your people, that you would give relief from pain and difficulty and stress and anxiety and fear and a weight of guilt. And Lord, I do pray now for Roger and Laura, our missionaries. And I pray, Lord, that you would do the same for them, that you would show them this week in a special and a fresh way that you are the God who hears and answers our prayers, that you're concerned with the day-to-day things that concern their hearts and minds, And as they put themselves to the work that you have given them this week, Lord, I pray that you would remind them in times of prayer together and individually, 
in times in your word and just in conversations that you bring about in their lives this week. I pray, Lord, that you would show them your active hand at work in their lives, that they would give all praise and glory to you, that you would humble their hearts to think that the God of heaven has called me his child. Lord, we thank you and praise you for this time to be together now, to pray for one another, to join our hearts together as one people, your church. And Lord, we do pray for those who are not here this morning who want to be and who desire to be part of this fellowship but can't. We pray, Lord, specifically for those who are shut in and aren't able to come. We pray that you would comfort them by your spirit. And we thank you, Lord, for your peace that passes all the understanding that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. invite you to open your Bibles to the New Testament book of Titus, 
Today we're beginning a new series on the book of Titus entitled Ordinary Christian Living. This morning we'll be reading verses 1 through 4 of Titus chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested His word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. The book of Titus was written in the 60s. And one of the obligatory comments I've heard about this book is that it wasn't in the 1960s. It is a little bit older than that, in the actual 60s. And it was written during a time when Paul was imprisoned, just before his death. And it was written to establish and set in order the things that concerned the churches on the island of Crete. The sincere faith of the Cretan believers was threatened by a wicked and ungodly culture and false teachers within the churches themselves. And as you pause for a minute, you might think, well, this letter could have been written for us today. We too need instruction and wisdom in how to live in the world and not be of it and how to discern the truth of God's Word that doesn't change with the passage of time or the feelings and intentions of men's hearts. Against a wicked and prevailing culture, and in opposition to the false teaching that was being peddled inside the church, Paul exhorts Titus to teach with all authority that knowledge of the truth of God's Word leads to godliness, and that believers are to adorn the gospel in every area of their life. As Paul begins this short letter, there are only three chapters, he sets his ministry and his authority in the context of God's redemptive historical plan. And so we're going to look at that this morning in verses 1 and 2 under three headings. A chosen messenger, number one. A chosen people, number two. And a chosen lifestyle, number three. Number one, a chosen messenger. Paul uses very familiar phrases in verse 1. He says that he's a bondservant of God and an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. A bondservant was, would have been a familiar phrase to people who were Jewish because in Israel there was a type of servant who of his own accord joined himself to a master for life saying, I will serve you always. Not under compulsion or threat of punishment or a need to pay a debt. It was a willing submission. I will serve you forever. In Exodus, Deuteronomy, and in the book of Joshua, Moses was referred to as a special servant of God, or man of God. He was God's chosen instrument to proclaim the word of God to His people. He received direct revelation from God. He did mighty acts of God before the people. And in Pharaoh's seeing... And he was doing these things for a specific purpose, that people might see and believe that God is alive 
and that He is the Redeemer of His people. Secondly, He said He was an Apostle. And He was of a particularly special class. You might say He was in a class of His own. He was chosen by Jesus. He saw the risen Christ. And He was commissioned to be His mouthpiece in the early days of the church. To speak with all authority. Because He received, just like Moses did, in a special way, direct revelation from God. He's saying, I'm not self-proclaimed in this calling. I didn't put this title on myself. In fact, the grace of God broke into my life when I was on the road to Damascus. I was on my way to persecute Christians when Jesus came and called me to this ministry. I didn't take it upon myself. None of the apostles gave it to me. In fact, none of them taught me the gospel. It was the Lord Jesus Himself who taught me the gospel. And even Ananias, who was a little bit timid about going to see this one who was called Saul because he persecuted the church in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, it says that the Lord appeared to Ananias in a vision and told him about Paul. He is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name. So Paul's position, his writing this book to Titus, this letter, was not because he had decided this title will be good for me or I have things that I just need to get off my chest. This is the Word of God. This is the revelation from the one who is the king of the church. And he's writing through Paul to Titus saying, I need you to go there and do these things. Set in order what needs to be set in order. Take care of my church. Teach the people. And Paul says that he's a chosen messenger For a specific purpose. He says in verse 1. That it's according to the faith of God's elect. And the acknowledgement of the truth. This word according to in the New King James. Is translated differently in other translations. In some translations it says. For the sake of. Or to further. Or in the interest of. What Paul is saying. Is that this ministry. Not of titles that I have. But this ministry that I've been given is not to draw attention to me. But God made me an apostle. He made me a bondservant of His. So that I might not boast in me, but boast in Him. For the sake of God's people. Paul is saying, everything that I do, everything that I suffer, everywhere that I travel, everything that I say, is to bring glory to God so that God's people might have faith in Him. And that they might not be deceived by the wily ways of the evil one. That they would actually know the truth. That it's knowable. That it is a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that I do is so that you, God's people, will embrace the truth. Not have familiarity with it. Not know something better than someone else. Not always be the one to raise your hand and say, but by the way, it was so you would know Jesus the living God, that you wouldn't be deceived, that every wind of doctrine that blows through the culture or through the church wouldn't cause you to sway like a weak reed, but so you would stand firmly on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that the trials of this life would not crumble your heart because you would know who holds this world in its existence. And He guides your life. He takes care of you. So this is why Paul is God's chosen messenger. And he can't point to anything in himself 
for the reason why. He says in 1 Corinthians, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called one. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain. He knows I persecuted the church. But He lays His past aside. Not forgetting it. But He he knows this is who I am. And yet God broke into my life. He chose me. I didn't choose Him. I was after those who said they loved Him. And He changed me. So number one, a chosen messenger. Number two, a chosen people. He says that He is an apostle and a bondservant of God for the sake of God's elect, for their faith. The God's elect... This idea that there's an elect people of God. People who God chose. It's an Old Testament concept of God's specially chosen covenant people who received His unmerited grace. Out of all the people of the earth, God says, I chose you, Israel. Not because of anything in you. Not because of anything you have or goodness that you might do. But I chose you that I might show forth my glory in the world. And Paul intentionally grabs this phrase in this New Testament book to say that any who hear the gospel that he preaches, any who believe it in his message and in his teaching are by God's grace a part of the historical family of God. If you believe by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in His payment for your sins, that He is the Son of the living God, you too are a part of that covenant family of God. You are God's elect, chosen by Him. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul applies this phrase, God's elect, to the church when he exhorts them and says, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, live this way. As those who have been chosen by God, do not forget who your Savior is. Do not forget what He came to do. Peter says these words also in his epistle. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, speaking to God's people, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Who once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That's true of you. You may not have a sense of it in your experience. You may not have thought it this morning when you looked in the mirror and checked your your hair, your makeup, or your tie before you walked into the car to come to church. But it's as true today as it was when Peter wrote those words. You are the people of God. You belong to Him dearly and beloved. And He sends His servants into the world to say this is the truth. That's what He's doing in Paul. It's what He did with Moses when He sent Him into the land of Egypt to deliver God's people out of the house of oppression. And Jesus came to say that I am the Redeemer. I am the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for. I am the only Savior of God's people. To know Me is to know the Heavenly Father. And all who come to Me, none I will cast away. This is the promise of the Gospel. It's the promise that God made before time began in verse 2 in Titus chapter 1. It's the covenant of redemption. And this is something that you won't find phrased in the Bible. You can't turn to a reference and see a cross-reference that says covenant of redemption. 
But we believe in our historic faith that there was an agreement among the three persons of the Trinity before the world was formed that said, we will send the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and He will redeem God's people by becoming a person, by dying for them and resurrecting from the grave. We believe that that was a decision that was made before the first sin was ever committed. We believe that that was made as a covenant among the Trinity before the world was formed, that God would do it, that He would redeem a people for His own possession. You see, it's always been God's desire for you and I to be in relationship with Him. It's always been His desire that we would walk with Him every day, that we would experience love and peace and assurance and blessing of knowing our Creator God. In John chapter 17, verse 24, Jesus said, Father, I desire that they also, whom You gave Me, may be with Me where I am, that they may behold My glory which You have given to Me, for You loved Me before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says of You, God's people, just as He, the Father, chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. And this is where Paul draws a line in the sand. That the best intentions of man that are visible in our broken promises or the vileness of liars, as he's going to talk about the Cretans later in chapter 1, is pointed out in contrast with the Holy God. Did you notice that in these verses... Paul makes it very clear, God does not lie. He promised eternal life before the world began. And He made good on that promise in sending the Lord Jesus Christ. And He does so by bringing grace into our lives. He changes us. We who hate Him and don't want anything to do with Him apart from His grace, He breaks into our lives and changes us. And He chose you before the foundation of the world. You belong to Him, the Creator of all worlds. In Titus chapter 1, not in the passage we read, in verse 12, this is not the words of Paul, this is one of their own. He says, it's a prophet of the Cretans. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. You might say, well, why don't you tell us what you really think about us? Why don't you just be honest? And he's making a point here. Paul is making a point that you are used to people lying. You expect for people to try to get one past you. And he's saying, don't think that way when you come to the living God. He doesn't lie. If he promised salvation, he will bring it. In Isaiah chapter 49, verses 15, and the beginning of verse 16, it says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? And then he says something that you wouldn't expect. Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. So number one, a chosen messenger. Number two, a chosen people. And number three, a chosen lifestyle. God chose His people that they would walk with Him. That they would be in relationship with Him in a way that was special and unique as Adam and Eve enjoyed it in the garden in the cool of the evening. It's been His intention since the creation of the world. It says that they're to live a certain way. That faith and the acknowledgement of the truth actually leads to something. 
And you can think about it in the way that salvation is brought about in the hearts of God's people. He gives us faith as a gift. He teaches us the knowledge of His Word. And then His Word guides us by His Spirit to live a life that honors and glorifies Him. It's a special word that Paul uses here. It's very unique in the Greek language. The word for godliness. In verse 1, it says the word Eusebia in the Greek. And I think he, he means this in two ways. Godliness in two specific ways. First, it's Paul's earnest desire for them that they grow in the knowledge of the truth that God leads to and produces godliness in their lives. That they would adorn the gospel in every area of their life. That everything they do, not just their religious life, not just their public life that other people see, the good step forward that they always put forward, and the good face that they put on even in the midst of difficulty. He's saying, no, you should adorn the gospel in every area of your life because truth transforms you. The Word of God changes you by His grace. He takes what is ugly and awful and He changes it. He transforms it. He creates faith where it doesn't exist. But also, he says, that godliness is the yardstick of truth. It's the yardstick of truth. That the lifestyle by the Holy Spirit that properly balances both faith and the knowledge of God and the behavior that gives expression to personal knowledge of God. What he's saying is that if you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to belong to God, that He has put His Son in your place and that He has given you the righteousness of His Son, that you no longer have to pay for the penalty for your sins. If you say you belong to Him, then the way that you can measure whether that's actually true or not is by looking at the lifestyle that you lead. The way that you make decisions, the way that you conduct yourself. In this letter, Paul is concerned with three very specific areas. He speaks about order and justice in the church. And so in chapter 1, he's going to spend some time speaking about relationships in the church. Order in the church through the elders and the leadership. But he's also concerned about order and relationships in the home. So he's going to talk about husbands and wives and children. He speaks about slaves. And then he's also going to speak about order in public life. And how God has a specific order for the way His people should live because it is the yardstick of truth. Do I live a godly life? Do I claim to know Jesus and then live like something else? That contradiction can't actually exist. I cannot live how I want to to glorify me to build my kingdom and yet claim to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's what Paul is saying. And Paul is eager. He's very eager that God's people through this letter that he's writing to Titus, would hear the truth and believe it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, he says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband. I have committed you, this is Paul's words, I've committed you, dear church, to the Lord Jesus Christ to present you as a pure bride that you might be wed to Him. And Paul aches in his heart that God's people would grasp that that they would believe the truth and hold on to it, that it would be what holds them in the seasons of life that are difficult. When the waters are coming over the bow, when the storm seems not to relent, He wants them to believe it and hold on to it, that it's true. These aren't just things that we do once a week. These aren't things that we try to tell ourselves to help us through difficult and hard times. These are truths upon which we base our entire lives. And lastly, He says 
about this chosen lifestyle. That for the church, for the believers, for Christians, it is a lifestyle that we live in godliness, in hope. In verse 2. Living now in the covenant confidence of the promises of God that since He promised to give us eternal life, He promised to give it to us. There's nothing for you to earn. There's no work you can do. Jesus, I hope that when I get to heaven, you'll remember what I did on that day and you'll let me in. There's nothing that you can do to earn an entrance into heaven. And He promised not only to give you eternal life, not only to put on Jesus the punishment of your sin and to give you His righteousness, He promises that I will be with you. I will be faithful to you. I will care for you. I'll be with you in the good and in the bad, in the lean years and in the bumper years. And when God makes a promise in the Bible, and particularly for Paul in these letters in the New Testament, when God makes a promise in the Bible, it's as good as already received. It's the reason Paul writes the way that he does. You already have this hope. And yet sometimes we know as believers, in reading the Scriptures in the Old and the New Testament, that there are times when even waiting in hope before God requires us to wait in humble obedience before Him. I want to turn over, if you have your Bible with you still, turn over just briefly to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read just a couple verses beginning in verse 24. Speaking about hope. What is hope? Romans chapter 8, verse 24. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. What he's saying there is that as we hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we hope for deliverance in Him, we do not see it yet, but we believe that it's coming. Jesus promised to give us eternal life. We don't have it yet. We're still living in this fallen world. But He has given us the promise to say, you can wait in hope before Me because I put My Spirit in you. I have given you the Holy Spirit that He would guide you and comfort you and be with you. That you would be reminded you belong to Me. It's My down payment to you. Because when I make a promise, I keep it. Though you may not keep your vows to Me, I keep My vow to you. I care for you. You're with Me. I'm with you. Augustus Toplady wrote this in a hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone. My name from the palms of His hand Eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given, more happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Do you believe that in hope today, dear believer? That when the Lord Jesus promised that where I go, you will go also. That I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and do it one day, I will come back and receive you unto myself. That you may be with me also. It is the promise of the living God. It is the reason that we should live in godliness and righteousness. Even before the wicked generation that we live in. It's as if this letter could be written for us today. We too need encouragement as God's people to adorn the gospel. To live waiting upon the Lord in hope of eternal life. It should be what motivates you in the morning. That the Lord is with me. Though my circumstances may be awful. Though the prospects of this day are not great. 
I know that the Lord is with me and he's promised to provide. And I have hope, not because of what I see, but because of what I don't see. Because he is the living God and he promised to be with me and provide for me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and your great and precious promises. We thank you for the book of Titus. And Lord, we thank you for this time to be able to study it together as a church family. Lord, I pray that there would be true grace in it for us. That we would hear and be corrected where we need to. That we would be comforted and guided by your spirit as we read the word of truth. Lord, help us to receive it as true revelation from your hand. These are not the musings of a mere man. This is the word of the living God. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your promises that you make and that you keep them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and respond to the word singing hymn number 55.
heaven, we we dedicate to you our tithes and our offerings, and in the midst of that dedication, Lord, we we dedicate ourselves to you, hearing that song that Callie just beautifully played, Take My Life and Let It Be. Lord, we do dedicate to you our tithes and offerings, and we offer up to you our very lives that you would use them for the spread of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for your kingdom to be elevated. And Lord, we pray for Uh, our hearts, that as we give each Sunday, that we wouldn't do so thoughtlessly. Lord, help us to do it with hearts that are full of assurance of faith, that you are the one who provides for us. You're the reason that we have food 
in our refrigerators and in our cupboards. You're the reason we have money in the bank. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for how you have blessed this church beyond measure. And not just this year, but for many years and generations before us, you have blessed this church. We thank you and we praise you that we might be able to worship here. And we do say to you, Lord Jesus, we trust you. Take our lives and let it be. In Jesus' name, amen. benediction of our Lord. May the Lord hide you in his shelter in the day of trouble, conceal you under the cover of his tent, and may he set you high upon a rock. Amen. Amen.